needed a cue from Gus. I didn't look at the exact layout of things. I was like, is it time? Yeah. Yeah, we didn't have a reader this morning. Uh, primarily because the content of the scripture is graphic. And we were like, who do we ask to do the reading when it's talking about God spilling out? Things like that. If you haven't read ahead, I'm just building intrigue for getting into the text in Acts. But yeah, I was a little out of sorts there. So good morning, everybody. It's incredible to see how the Lord is moving in our midst. And I'm tempted to just go on for 20 minutes about all that we've already heard this morning. And I'll quickly move through. We've got some things that I'll comment on when we have our members gathering. So I know I'll have my moment. So I'll wait till then. Um, we have a, an annual tradition in our family. It's a bit of a, like for us, like a rite of passage thing is when the kids get old enough to see certain movies. And, um, and, and, and I would encourage that if you didn't know that there are ratings on movies for reasons for your kids. I would encourage you to exercise parental judgment and say no when it comes time to know it's a little bit beyond you. And don't just trust Hollywood's ratings because anyway, okay, I'm, I'm ranting. I'll stop now. But um, one of the things that our kids always look forward to is when they become a certain age, 12, 13, they get to watch some of the family favorites that we've held off on there until they can handle it. And this is going to sound a little bit lame, but one of them is War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. Um, because there's some, you know, pretty creepy alien stuff going on in there. It's a little bit dated now. It's nearly 20 years old and stuff, but it's got, you know, so anyway, we just wait because we're the ones that have to deal with the midnight, you know, nightmares. So we try to push that off as long as possible. But what I look forward to, my sermon has nothing to do with War of the Worlds, except for a little bit of a storyline in War of the Worlds. Uh, but my, my, one of my favorite things that draws me into the story every time is the parental aspect of Tom Cruise's character, who is Ray, and his son, who is Robbie. Now, in the movie, he's got two children, and one is the way too grown up, too smart for her own britches, um, what's her name? Dakota Fanning. And so she's already 28 as a, as a 11 year old in the movie. But, um, but the son in that relationship always interests me because you can tell Tom Cruise's character is a removed father. There's been a divorce in the family. He's not been real good at keeping, you know, a tight relationship with his kids. He's not really good at this whole thing. The, his ex-wife has to worry about leaving them in his care for the weekend if they're going to be taken care of and fed and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, so in the movie, what you see, is a development of him seeing that his son Robbie has grown up a lot and, and is willing to sacrifice, especially in this ter- tumultuous time like an alien invasion on the planet, that he has grown up, he has matured to the point where he wants to take on responsibility, he wants to spread his wings, and there's a point where he just needs to be in the action. And he says to his father, he goes, you need to let me go. I need to see this. I need to be a part of this. And you see all of that parental turmoil of, but I can't let you go. I'm not ready to send you out, even though you're showing me that you've matured. And, and even with that maturity comes a lot of na- naivete, right, because of the age and the lack of experience and things. Like I said, it's got nothing to do with alien invasion. It's that storyline in there that grabs me every time. 
And seeing our kids grow up shows that when we see these signs of maturity, it starts to occur to us. Things are changing. They're, they're moving beyond the scope of our control. They're moving beyond the scope of our influence in a lot of ways. But there's a rewarding aspect to it. We see them starting to make responses to life situations that we didn't think they were ready for. And all of a sudden they surprise us and they kind of are starting to act like adults in certain ways. The way they go about making their decisions, they've evaluated the cost of things a little bit more. Of course, I'm, I'm generalizing. We know that some don't move on and don't grow up and things like that. But when you have the opportunity to witness that, it's quite rewarding. I personally love how the sense of humor develops. I find my kids, they're pretty funny, but I find they get funnier even the older they get. It's more clever humor and that sort of thing. And it rounds out our lives and it colors our lives and things. As we see that maturation process start showing up in those kinds of ways, it's really uh, a lot of fun to be a part of and to, and to participate in, but mostly to witness, to be a little bit standoffish and say, wow, this is really cool to see happen and develop. What I think we're seeing, <laughs> this is the connection, in the book of Acts is that the disciples who saw Jesus get taken, locked up, tortured, and crucified were like children in a lot of ways. Now when we come to the book of Acts, there's some growth process that's happened that they're responding to the things that they're seeing and and anticipating and waiting for in a completely mature and grown-up way and how, how we get to see that they were this way before and now they're acting this way and how rewarding that is to witness, but also how challenging it is for us to imagine what is the, the, the ingredient that changed them from childlike behavior in so many ways, the fear and intimidation and the hiding in dark corners and all those things to all of a sudden start to take on these challenges and and be ready to take them head first. You need to let me go. I need to see this. I need to be a part of this kind of mindset. Something has changed in their hearts and it's turned them into leaders. They had just seen Jesus ascend really like literally whipped up in a cloud and taken out. And, 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 and ascending to the right hand of his father after he had given them their, their parting mission, the thing that would fuel the, the, the mission of the church for the last 2000 years. And he was taken up and, and, and we remember from the text last week, they were just kind of gawking as we all would going, what did we just witness? Not only was it a miracle to see that take place, but our closest friend who we thought was dead now is alive and he's leaving again. We just got used to having him back after these 40 days. Then the angels appear, two of them appear and kind of smack them into reality and snap them. That's not a smack. That's a snap. Snap them into reality and said, men of Galilee, men of a place on this earth, you still have a mission to carry out. Remember the words of Jesus. This is what he said to them in verse eight of our of our last week's text. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses here. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea. And Samaria, you'll spread it out to the region, and eventually this thing is going global. Jesus had said to them, you're not to leave yet. Something is going to happen. The spirit, the promised spirit that you've heard me speak about before is coming on a certain day. Now, God knew what day that would be. And I'm going to say coincidentally in quotes, it happens to be 50 days after Passover, known as the day of Pentecost. So the arrival of that seems very strategic and timely, but the disciples didn't know when. All they knew is is he's coming soon in the number of days is how Jesus put it to them. 
And so they are not released yet. Jesus wants them to experience the arrival of the Holy Spirit in a particular place. He wants those in Jerusalem to witness it first. That's part of the strategy. It's going to happen in the hometown and it's going to start spreading from there. But what we're seeing is that the transformation of these apostles is that the spirit is going to fall on maturing people. And it's coming to them first, not just previously immature people like remember the the nickname, the sons of thunder. Why would they call the sons of thunder? Because they wanted to rain vengeance lightning down on those that were picking on Jesus. You put the hands of or you put the power of the spirit in the hands of those immature followers of Jesus and who knows what they would try to do. I'm not saying they'd be successful. So God is putting the, the spirit, he's, he's, he's having the spirit fall on matured and maturing disciples. So the principle I'd like us to extract from that is that you and I are best positioned for God's use while we are continuing to grow up in him. I'm a firm believer that God will do anything he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants. I'm not saying that God won't move in somebody's life until they've made themselves available. Because he spoke through a donkey to get through to somebody. He'll do whatever he has to do. But it seems as though his common mode of operation is to work in those that are surrendering themselves, that are making themselves available, and are actively growing in him, and he pours gas on that fire. It's almost like if you want to be in a sailboat, you want to catch wind, you've got to put the work in of pulling the sail up and getting it in position to receive the wind. That's how the Lord seems to operate most in history. Today's mindset, though, is this is the thing that I, I witness more and more with a, a cultural Christianity. I'm, I'm talking amongst our, I'm going to, I'm going to say like in the entertainment world. So our, our pop stars and our, our, um, uh, social media stars and athletes and things like that. They're not enemies of Jesus. A lot of them. A lot of them are not actively saying that, you know, worshiping God is wrong or something like that. They just have reduced it to a thing that's like a corner of their life. And so every once in a while when they have to get their church on or get their worship on, then Jesus is okay. But it doesn't inform, he doesn't inform any other aspect of their lives. This is what's becoming more the mode of particularly American Christianity. That Jesus is allowed into the corners that I open up to him and he can do what he wants within reason. But I got other things that are occupying my time and my mindset. So when we look at what's happening here, this is against that that particular cultural bent. We're seeing that these guys were growing up, that the Lord was putting them on the fast track to maturity and was preparing them for uh, receiving the Holy Spirit. Remember last week I cautioned us for romanticizing all of the events of Acts. You know, it's incredible and we're going to be celebrating again all the miracles that Jesus did. They, God really did these things. And this is really a part of our church history. But the book of Acts is spanning about 30 or so years of church history. We see it, we could read it in a couple of days and you'd be like, man, the spirit was on the move. Everything, miracle after miracle was constantly showing up. And again, what we start to think is that there must be something wrong with us because miracles aren't showing up every second of every minute of every day in our lives. But these events are spread out over 
30 years at strategic times for strategic purposes. Again, because Jesus started off with a mission. He said, this is the way we're going to go about doing it. And God has a plan and his plan continues to be exercised. So we make ourselves available to it, not trying to manipulate and trying to demand of God that he gives us that same feeling of experience like somehow Acts is portraying. I hope that's clear. So we come to our text and beginning in verse 12. It says, after seeing Jesus ascend and kind of gawking and needing to be snapped back into reality, it says, then they turned, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet or the Mount of Olives, as we see in scripture, uh, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. There's reasons for them calling it that. I won't get into all of them, but just assume, just know it's about a little over half a mile away. And when they had entered, They went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, again, I'm going to pause here for a second just for some context. This upper room is a very, uh, it's it's a room if you can afford to have one or if you're building a structure in the sense to have one. It's not a tiny little closet or anything. It's usually on the upper levels of the house, so it's private. It's away from interaction, I mean, uh, interruption and distractions. And um, this one happens to be of a particular size. We're going to see that there are about 120 people gathered there and stuff. So it was able to house that many. But this is a place of retreat and, and a place of rest and strategy, perhaps. It might even be the same upper room that Jesus shared his last meal with the disciples before his crucifixion. Um, it, mo- it probably most uh, um, likely is the room that he would come and visit them over the 40 days after his resurrection when he'd come and go, that he was visiting them in this room. And so this is a, a close journey and a short walk, if you will, if you call a half a mile a short walk. Some days I do, some days I don't. Um, you know, away from the place, the Mount of Olives, where they saw Jesus go. And so they've returned to this place, but they're returning different men. What that room has meant for them in the past has been a whole varied uh, group of experiences, but now they just saw something, again, a very triumphant exit of Jesus to ascend to the right hand of his father. They returned to this familiar place, having been again changed. The Lord just continues to bring them further and further and further in their journey with him. So they return to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. If you're adding up in your head, there's 11 names there. One's missing, right? Judas who betrayed the Lord. And because of the guilt and the weight and everything associated with it and all the pressure of the world coming down on him, he ended his own life. After having uh, returned the uh, the payment that he got, we'll talk about here in a few minutes. And he succumbed to all of that pressure and that guilt and everything and hung himself. And so they're missing a person and they're dealing with all of that and thinking through all of those things. Yet this is a different group. This isn't the same group that is saying, what are we going to do now? Our leader's gone. Our, 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 our friend is defected. Um, and he's dead. And now there's a blemish on our, our, our track record. And now we're being made to be the laughing stock. And all. there's no panic. There's no fear. What we're going to see here is Jesus gave us an action plan. Let's put it into motion. Who are these guys? How would they change? How would they come to the place that they would be ready for all of these things? What we're seeing here is that mature followers of Jesus wait on the Lord differently. 
You know there's a difference in how we wait, right? Until we get the answer we want or the direction that we want. We can either wait in anxiety. We can wait in demand. We can wait in fits and, and restlessness or any of those things. Or we can wait differently it was as is being displayed for us here by these people. They are waiting in this upper room, but taking action. They are uniting themselves around the mission that Jesus had just left them with. If God wants us to do this, then we've got to start thinking about how to put this plan in motion. So we come to verse 14, which is known as the Honda verse. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Sharp group. You got it. See, that's part of the challenge of having grown up in the church is I know all the stupid, lame jokes and all the... And I keep telling myself, don't go there. You've heard it for 40 years, but I can't help it. I have to... They were all in one car devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They are together. And they are devoting themselves. It means continually they are engaging in prayer. And again, don't skip over the cast of characters. Don't skip over the people that are present in this room. It's pretty remarkable if we break it down and we say they're devoting themselves together. So there isn't a faction here. There isn't some jockeying for position. Well, I think what we should do next is this. And what I think we should do next is this. And you might say, well, that seems reasonable until you see that Mary's in this crowd. They just killed her son. His half-brothers are in this crowd. These are the ones that Mary and Joseph gave birth to. I say half-brothers because Jesus, as you know, was not born of Joseph, was born of the Virgin Mary. And they're all present, which is cool in and of itself, because these brothers didn't all believe in Jesus while he was preaching the gospel and while he was ministering and everything. They, they, they were Johnny-come-latelys to it all because, again, it's like, well, I grew up with them. You know, I, I played uh, sports against him and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and I just can't wrap my head around the fact that he was here to save the world. It just doesn't seem so. They were Johnny come lately to it all, but they're here now. What changed? What happened to get them involved in it? And, and why wouldn't they, as being his own family, why wouldn't they be out asking for blood in revenge? What are we going to do about this? We got to get them back. They took him from us. No, something's changed. And they are part of the group devoting themselves around the mission and, act, and and being in continuous prayer. You don't get to that place unless the hyper focus you have on the mission is bigger than all the other, I'm going to say, inconveniences or heartbreaks along the way. Maybe you've been in that mode in your life where you're like, I can't even believe I'm pressing forward right now. I can't even believe that I'm able to overlook some of the things that I should otherwise be kind of consumed by. Because I'm looking further down the road at the thing to, to be a part of, or the thing to accomplish. It's, it's bigger, in my view, than those other things. Mary had to come to that place, and she had probably the most practice out of everybody, because she was told right out of the gate, this one that's being born to you isn't for you. He's for everybody. And so she probably was practicing the letting go thing as much as a parent is able to from day one. And so she's, she's coming to a place of like, okay, now the mission's kicking into full gear. Now all that we went through seems even more worth it. So maybe she's leading the way with letting go in that sense and engaging in this mission. I just find this fascinating as you think about who's in the room. 
So what are they devoting themselves? Other translations have said they devoted themselves to the prayers. And I don't want to be nitpicky here, but Jesus didn't say go off and pray for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. If you look closely, he says, go off and pray because the spirit is coming. And again, when we say he arrives precisely 50 days after Passover, it seems like the Lord's plan wasn't dependent on the prayer requests of the people. So however much faith they expressed in that upper room, however much they gutted it out or sweated out might not have been a contributing factor to when the spirit arrived. That's something we've got to keep in mind when we think about our responsibility for God's movement and his plans. Sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves or or we allow people to tell us that the reason why things aren't going well in our life is because we don't have enough faith. We have to be careful about throwing those kinds of statements out. Jesus didn't say go and beg God for the spirit to come. He said, go pray, be involved in the prayers. In other words, engage in your worship, talk to the Lord, commune with your father because the spirit is coming. Go prepare. You might remember in Ephesians 6, where Paul told us to pray continually, pray without ceasing. And we said that that was like keeping the line open. Doesn't mean we go hide in a dark room for 24 seven for the rest of our lives, just because we're supposed to be mumbling some chants. No, we are supposed to keep the line open and keep conversation going with the Lord. Paul had told us in first Thessalonians that we're to rejoice, always pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He told the Philippians, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we made the point as we were going through Ephesians 6, if you're not going to worry about anything, you need to be praying about everything. And this is important. This is what they were doing. They were recommitting themselves to the thing they knew to do. And they knew that, that, that the Lord was in, and that was talking to him, praying to him. Since Ephesians 6, for those of you that were here for the study, how have you been doing in building unity together through prayer? And I don't even just mean like praying together with somebody, but even praying for those that you feel a distance from or that have hurt your feelings or that you disagree with. Remember, we talked about one of the the ways of keeping the armor on, if you will, in Ephesians 6 is to be praying in unity with and for other people. Maybe you made a commitment when we were talking about that. Maybe that pricked you to your conscience and you said, I need to be doing that. How has that been going? Have you prayed for even those that you're at odds with or at war with? Again, we go back to the presence of Mary and Jesus brothers in that room. What are their, what's the content of their prayers? Are they all sitting around going, okay, Lord, we praise you, we praise you. And then every time it's Mary's turn, she's like, and get them back. Do we think that's what's really going on? Are people feeling uncomfortable because the immediate family of Jesus can't seem to wrap their head around the praise of the Lord? No. It says they were in agreement. They were in one accord together, praying for the mission of God to unfold. God uses the kindling of our surrendered hearts to light the Spirit's flame. And that's what he's about to do when we get into chapter 2. So not only do mature followers or believers of Jesus wait differently than those that are walking by the flesh, but mature followers see the bigger picture of what's really going on instead of just accepting what the surface is telling them. So this is what's starting to take place. In verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, 
Luke puts in parentheses here, the company of the persons was in all about 120. That's why we get the size of the room being what it is. But it's also pretty cool that, that Luke is including this for Theophilus because he's saying, hey, look, we have a Jewish law or requirement on our side of things, oh great Theophilus, that says you don't really have a community and you can't appoint leadership until you get about 120 people participating. So Luke is saying, even by some ragtag measures, this group met the Jewish standard again, which is a testimony to those in Jerusalem that they were doing things, quote unquote, the right way. So they couldn't even pick on that, that the following was big enough to say that we are a legit community and we can establish legit leadership. So he says in all, the company of persons was about 120 and he, and he said in verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. This is Peter talking, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. In other words, Judas was invested. He was, I would say, all in, not committed, but he was a participant with us, lived, ate, drank, walked with us, had a share in this ministry. He was one of us. So in parentheses in verse 18, he says, now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And and again, just kind of side note here. That isn't exactly what Judas did. He didn't take the 30 pieces of silver and go and buy the land. What he did was, out of his guilt, he, he tried giving it back to the people that hired him and manipulated him in the first place. He said, I don't want that money anymore. And the Jews, the leaders, they somehow kind of piously said, well, we don't want to deal with Judas's blood money like they didn't put him up to it. So let's just go get rid of it. Let's go buy a field with this. Maybe we'll turn into some cemetery or something like that for foreigners or whatever. And we'll just get it off our hands because we don't want it coming back to us either. See how everyone's just passing the buck? I didn't do this. I didn't sell him out for a few coins. So that money eventually was used to purchase a field. And so Peter is saying this was his money. This was his purchase, whether he recognizes it or not. Of course, he can't now because he's gone. Verse 18, this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, this is the gross part, he burst open in the middle and all of his innards came out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama. I don't know how to say that. That is field of blood. Thank you, Luke, for the translation. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. The big paragraph, there's a lot going on here. Some of the background I've tried hitting along the way, but we're going to look at this a little bit. I just want to rewind and say, isn't it incredible? It's Peter, the one that's standing up. Peter was the one. who most famously sold out Jesus in the sense that he denied him three times, even caving to the pressure of a little girl who says, aren't you a follower of his? So Peter denies him, goes into abject um, uh, uh, humiliation and, and and feels completely ostracized now from the, the path that Jesus was on, no longer worthy to even be called a friend or a follower of his and is just destroyed by his own guilt and humiliation for what he did. So what does Jesus do when he returns and he sends message to the the women at the tomb? And he says, go and tell the disciples. You remember this class and who 
And Peter, even though Peter was a disciple, single him out for me and tell, tell him it's going to be okay. Go and tell Peter, he's still in, still part of the mission. I told you that was going to happen and I've forgiven it already. He restores them and repairs them. And so it's Peter that's standing up with the game plan, with the clarity, with the maturity. Why? Because Peter, in our day and age, we would say he's been given self-worth back. Peter's been, had his ego rebuilt. No, Peter is walking in forgiveness. When, when, when you are truly released of your absolute worst guilt, what you feel is a sense of, of, I owe that person something. Peter can't be shut up now. Peter can't be made to be quiet and be in the corner. Peter isn't operating based on, well, I'm kind of the one that had a lot of shame. Maybe I'm not qualified. No, he's forgiven. He's released. See, psychologically, we want to say that he's been restored. He's been told you're okay. You're worth something, everything. No, he's just forgiven and rebuilt by the spirit of God. He's the one that says, guys, listen, I know it feels like we've had a setback. I know we've just witnessed a lot of crazy things. I know we've been thinking about the fact that Judas betrayed Jesus, that he sold us out, that he's departed from us, that he's died horrifically, grotesquely. All of these things have happened. We understand this, but, but these things happened because the scripture said they had to. And instantly perspective is restored instantly. Hey, wait a second. I was forgetting about this. Remember what pastor Tom said earlier that Jesus took the time to show them all the scriptures that were pointing towards himself. Peter had an education from Jesus himself. Peter had time in the last 40 days to figure some of these things out. So he's probably pouring through the scriptures and putting all the pieces back together. So he boldly stands up and says, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. He's bringing perspective of purpose to this tragedy. He quotes two phrases from the book of Psalms. And I admit, whenever I hear that um, an Old Testament passage is prophesied something that happens in the New Testament. I want it to be so clearly stated that it's unmistakable. For one, I'm not a Jewish learner. I don't have the history of how they went about learning these things. I don't have the context of all that they were thinking about and swirling around. So when I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it more inquisitively. Like I want to see the facts. I want to see the dots and I want to see them clearly connect. And sometimes when I hear that a psalm is pointing towards either the Messiah or somebody involved in all that, I want it to be stated so clearly that it's proof positive. We're probably not going to get that satisfaction from these lines unless we look at the whole context, which we don't have time to do. In Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 specifically, they're being quoted here. But suffice it to say that that those two Psalms have now been historically reviewed in hindsight of all that's taken place as Psalms that are clearly pointing to the suffering, the rejection, the betrayal that the Messiah would experience. And as you peruse Psalm 69, you start to see phrases that are, that are, um, oh, this is something that Tim Corbett and I often laugh about is we looked at the Psalms always historically as like, David's such a whiner. Like he's always just like, oh, my enemies are coming to get me. I'm always looking over my shoulders like it's a mighty King Dave. He's like killing bears with his bare hands and everything. How do you go from that to be this guy who's like, oh, my enemies are closing in about me? You you have to look a little bit below the surface. It isn't just David being thin skinned as much as he is also reflecting 
the same thing that is going to be happening to Jesus in which we would all say Jesus was not a whiner. Jesus was not a wimp. Jesus wasn't unwilling to take the persecution from his enemies. In a lot of ways, David, though, we don't know fully all that he was communi- what he knew he was communicating. But in a lot of ways, the phrases that he that he spilled out in the Psalms became the reality of what we saw in Jesus life. For instance, you look at Psalm 69 and the phrase, zeal for your house has consumed me. And if we're just reading David's words, we're like, oh, he loves the temple. But when you think about the fact that Jesus was so consumed by the zeal of the Lord's temple that he drove out those that were taking advantage of the faithful and the worshipers. And he, in our view, he would say he lost his mind and he chased them out in anger. That's zeal. So what was a foreshadowing from David became a reality in the life of Jesus or in a, a less, some might say, well, that's self-fulfilling prophecy. Jesus could just do that because he knew that's what David said. Well, David also said in that same Psalm, for my thirst, they give me sour wine to drink. That's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus didn't manipulate that. Hey, by the way, when I'm dying and I can't catch my breath and can't, and I'm thirsty, would you please make sure some of that sour wine's available? Because that's what David had. So then Peter uses the phrase, may their camp or may their land, this purchase of land, become desolate. He's referring to and he's interpreting for us that that was a picture. A, it was a, a pointing towards what would happen with this land that that um, the blood money purchased. Psalm 109, where we get our second quote from, there uh, are phrases in there that give us uh, some pretty clear picture too. I had seen this earlier this week and I said, okay, wait, this reminds me of something. The phrase in Psalm 109, he pursued the poor and needy to put them to death. He's talking about Psalm 109 really is putting an emphasis on the betrayer here. It's a very direct link to Judas. And he's saying here, he pursued the poor and needy and put them to death. And instantly my mind goes to when Judas was complaining about the oil, the expensive ointment that was being spilt on Jesus' feet and his hair and everything. And and she was taking care of him. And what did Judas say in the midst? What a waste. We could have sold this. and, And I don't know, just off the top of my head, could have given the money to the poor or something. But then they immediately say, all those that knew, Judas knew his heart wasn't for the poor. He didn't care. He was, he was stealing from the treasury. So he wanted all those funds in the purse so he could be taking it out at his leisure. And so I see in Psalm 109, this is 109, this is someone who pursued the poor and needy and put them to death. And I'm like, well, that was in his heart for sure. Or he says, I am the object of scorn to my accusers. They wag their heads at my sight. And I instantly picture what must have been taking place as Jesus was hanging on a cross. The scripture says anybody who hangs from a tree is considered cursed. So as they walked by Jesus on the cross and they just shook their head, what a shame. He had such promise as a Messiah. We thought he was the real deal. And they wag their heads at his sight. So Peter says all of these prophecies We have to take this phrase, let another take his office and treat it seriously. This was Judas's future is that he would be by his own death and actions and everything, be stripped of the office of apostle. And we need to replace him because this is what's been prophesied. Again, as we're just a little bit on a rabbit trail here, let me just make a few points before we move on. The Old Testament scripture is just as inspired as the New Testament. Now, I know most of us know this. We believe this, but it, but we sometimes fail to see its value because it's 
even more ancient. It's mostly narrative and story. It doesn't have a lot of direction like do this, don't do this. And so we have a tendency to kind of, uh, you, you know, undervalue, if you will, the Old Testament. And, and it's not been my um, goal to not teach through an Old Testament book, by the way. It's just been with the season that we're in, all of the other things have, have kind of jumped uh, precedent. So I guarantee you, I shouldn't, Lord willing, <laughs> will uh, be teaching through an Old Testament book at some point in the future. But Jesus quoted the Old Testament all the time. The, all the, the, the Jewish faithful it was the only Bible they had. The Old, the Old Testament is as inspired by God's hand as the new. This is what Peter tells us. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is again looking at the Bible that had already been written. Augustine is quoted for helping us understand this by saying that the new, that is the New Testament, is in the old concealed. We don't always see the old, the New Testament in the old, but the old is by the new revealed. So when we see what's playing out in the New Testament, we go, ah, that's what was happening in the old. So there's our kind of uh, excursion into that a little bit. Back to Psalm 69 and 109. The difference between the two is that Psalm 69 comes from the heart of David as one who's expressing personal guilt, saying, I've kind of got myself in some of my own trouble and I need God's mercy. But Psalm 109 is coming at it from a completely innocent perspective. I don't deserve any of this. Who does that sound more like? A sinless one. Jesus' interaction with Judas, and we have to spend the time on Judas here because it's so crucial to all that they were going through. I mean, this is a, a key figure completely removed and so pivotal in all this. He is the human reason, if you will, for the, Jesus actually seeing through the, uh, the, um, the mission of laying his life down. In Matthew 26 captures this where Jesus explains to them, most likely staring right at Judas when he says this, the son of man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not even been born. You say, oh, that's a little harsh. What was, how do I know he was looking right at Judas? Because Judas immediately goes, are you talking about me? Am I going to, yeah, what Judas is really thinking is, how do you know? Because that is my plan. But how did you know? I think it's interesting for us to pause on this and just think about the fact that Judas did show remorse after he betrayed Jesus. If you've ever seen the Passion movie, they show this really pretty powerfully where they show Judas literally taking the bag of the coins and wiping his tears away and chucking it back at the Jewish leaders. I don't want any part of this. To think that Judas was cold and callous right to the end, I think would be a mischaracterization. But yet he still wasn't saved. I don't see any indication that he was forgiven of this or anything. Why wouldn't he be? Because he did the worst thing ever and couldn't be restored? No, I think there's a difference between remorse and repentance. That people feel so bad for the situation they're in. They feel so heavy by the burdens that they carry, yet they don't come to a place where they say, there is one who will rescue me from this. That there is one who will make my path straight and make my way right. There is one who I can, I can go to the other person and say, I've wronged you. I'm so sorry. What can I do to repair it? We don't have any indication of a repentance, of a turnaround, of a change of behavior. Judas just says, too much for me to bear, I'm out. Peter, however, is a different story. And what we see Peter doing is showing the doubters and the discouraged 
that this was all a part of God's plan, even the use of one man's wickedness. God uses the proof of his sovereignty. He lays out a plan and shows us piece by piece what that plan is to keep the spirit's flame hot within us. I know, I think we sometimes believe that faith is kind of like anti-knowledge, that we don't have a lot of facts, we don't have a lot of proofs or anything. Remember last week we said that Jesus spent the time to show all the proofs that he was the Messiah and that the scriptures had said he was going to go through this and that he would uh, live again. Faith is not anti-knowledge. It's the presence of just enough knowledge to trust that the things that we don't know are in good hands. So we see a maturity with these guys. We see them, um, we see them showing wisdom in the perspective they're showing. We see them showing wisdom in the choices they make. They still have work to do. They have an empty seat that they need to fill. So verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they put forward two: Joseph called Barsabbas, who is called Justice. He just has too many names. That's one way to get yourself excluded is if you say, oh, and I'm also this guy and I'm also there. Like we can't vote. We'll never keep his name straight. It's not really, but. They all have different meanings for different audiences. And Matthias, Matthias, however you want to pr- pronounce it. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place, not just his own choice of actions or go down that road, but to his own end, which is torment, death, and uh, an everlasting torture in hell. Verse 26, and they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Again, lots of stuff going on. I'd love to just kind of take a long time to break through these things, but two limitations, time and my own intellect. So let's work with what we've got. The office of the apostle had a vacancy. We talked about this last week and we said that the door to the office of apostleship closes at some point. It gets a little bit dicey when you want to stick to the strictest terms. There are 12 apostles. Judas then goes off and removes himself voluntarily. They get another apostle, still 12 seats. But eventually, a guy named Paul is noted and named as an apostle. And you say, well, wait a second, is there 13? And then you see some other names coming and going that they also refer to as apostles for a little while. So it's important to understand that the office itself has has closed, but the function, not so much. And what we see happening in Acts, and this is how we're interpreting what is right for us as a church in this day and age, is you see as things start waning off and they start to go quiet, or we don't see these practices so much anymore, we have to stop putting too much emphasis on them. So it's one way to interpret what you see in the scriptures. A lot of times people say, well, what do you mean it's unbiblical? It happened in Acts, but for how long? And what was the replacement to the thing that no longer happens? That sort of thing. That's one way for us to interpret what we read in the scriptures. So the office of the apostle is closely connected to something that Jesus said in Matthew 19. This helps us understand why it was a limited number, why 12 would be the only number of quote-unquote official apostles keeping that office. Jesus said to them in verse 28, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, that is a time to come 
you who have followed me, he's talking to his 12, will also sit on 12 thrones, an exact number, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So it all ties back to Israel has 12 tribes. It will have 12 heads as uh, who are these 12 apostles. So there's an office reason for the fact that the number is limited. But again, they weren't being extremely strict on the title of it. And even Paul makes a case for in, in all the other ways, I am an apostle. But Peter is laying down some qualifications. He says, when we make this choice, let's base it on a couple of things. He says, uh, first, he needs to be accompanied. He needs to have accompanied them when Jesus was coming and going out from our midst. From the time of John the Baptist till the time that we just saw him taken up in the cloud. And two, he has to have seen the post-resurrected Jesus in person. So Paul, as we said, would eventually be an apostle, be named as such, but he didn't even meet both of these qualifications. He, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus as Jesus interrupted his journey to call him to himself. But he, did, he wasn't with the disciples the whole time. Paul was busy killing them while they were uh, um, you know, experiencing all of these things. So, um, so there's some confusion for you on apostles. Go and study and come to your own conclusions. But there's a reason why they were being selective and careful about how they were going to go about this. More importantly, in my view, is a tiny little phrase in their prayer that shows what Peter and the others were unified around. He prays, let me just find it here again, where it was in the scriptures. He said, they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all. This is in verse 24. So we have two good guys meet all the qualifications. They're good externally. We've gotten to be good and close with them. We know that they'll be faithful, whichever one we choose. They're not jockeying for position because again, they're in one Honda. They're together on this. They're not, uh, they're not hoping like, Oh, I hope it's me. I hope it's me. Pick me. And if they don't get picked, they're just mad and they defect or anything like that. This is a place of honor and it's definitely a place of future position. But at the same time, they know this is a heavy calling. And if the Lord is in this, he'll choose the right person who's supposed to see, uh, fill that seat. So the requirements were Lord, all the things that we can't see, that's your department. You know, the hearts. And so they cast lots, which is a strange, very, for me, very unsatisfying way of going about this. I want to see something a little more spiritual, but they cast lots, but it's not completely foreign to them. It's something that's been prescribed before in the Old Testament. And and it, and it goes away. Remember what we said, things go away as time goes on. It goes away at the arrival of the Spirit. You don't hear them doing this practice anymore when they've been given the presence of the Holy Spirit to help them make better decisions and things. But in their, in their actions and in their prescription, even if you see from some of the Old Testament passages, it was an exercise of faith. It wasn't just luck or chance. It was, Lord, you have to do the parts we can't control or manipulate. So they cast these stones that had some kind of indication in our world to be like dice. This is not a justification for Vegas. So please don't say, well, it happened in X. It's what we do with things. So they cast lots and the Lord... Uh, in, in their even own account says he chose Matthias to represent them and take that 12th seat. As things were getting dicey, you wonder if he was going, hey, is this getting a little tough in here? And sorry for the pun. That was dicey. I didn't plan that. That's not even in my notes. All right, lastly, 
God uses the character of his followers to shine the light of the spirit. This is the part that they're praying for. Lord, you know what's living inside of these men. You know what they think about when they go home, when they're not in meetings with us. You know what they're looking at, what they're dwelling on, all these kinds. Lord, you know the character. So you pick. This is what God uses to shine the light of the spirit is he knows the places of us that others don't. And he works with that. Yes, he changes and transforms us. He helps us grow in our character. doesn't just leave us stuck where we're at. But this is what he cares about. Not just our external performance. There weren't apostles that had the best jobs or the best educations or any of those kinds of things. Those weren't the qualifications that they wanted, nor were they the qualifications the Lord wanted. Lord, you know the heart. So that's what they prayed for. See, can you see the maturity of the apostles on display? Are these the same guys? Would they have been asking the same questions, coming up with the same plans, voting the same way if they were the the little kind of like impetulant children that were following Jesus? Like, I want you to rain fire down on them. That's who they were before. Now they're not. They're saying things like, well, God's had a plan all along. We can trust this plan, you know. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to break down on us. God's plan is only in our hands to take care of, to steward it. Not to manipulate it for our own power and control. These guys were ready for the arrival of the Spirit to do great things through them. And what was the single change in their lives for these disciples to grow up so quickly? It was the resurrection of Jesus. The the proof and the reality that he's standing in front of us, that he's accomplished everything that he promised he would, was enough to convince them we're all in. They got over all their petty differences. They'd forgotten about all the concerns that they had back home. All these sorts of things, because this meant everything. He's risen. Timely, right? We're coming into Easter pretty soon, regardless of what the snow is telling you. I promise you we are. Wouldn't this be better for us to focus on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and say, how is that supposed to transform me? How is that supposed to change my life? How is that supposed to grow me up into maturity? It was enough for them. No other factor. The spirit hadn't arrived yet. And yet this is how they were conducting themselves. All because of the resurrection of Jesus. And it was preparing them for the arrival of the spirit. Encountering the reality of the risen son of God is the most life-changing event that anyone can have. It's why we exist. It's why we celebrate Easter the, the way that we do. It's why we point to everything because it just means that everything else he said and did was true. And a lot of times we don't feel what Jesus does for us, right? We're chasing it a lot of times in Christianity. But simply put, when God forgives your sins, he changes the way that you go about your life. He changes your value system. And ultimately, he rescues you from eternity without him. And those aren't always things that we immediately feel. But some of you can really testify about that, can't you? You can say, well, when I gave my life to the Lord, he changed my perspective on everything. I looked at my money different. I looked at my kids different. I looked at my marriage different. I looked at my job different. I looked at my free time and all these things differently. Why? Because the resurrection of Christ changes us. It grows us up. We start to uh, witness what really matters in life and live by it. Well, I'd encourage you to go through your notes this week. I have some other follow-up application questions and considerations for you to to see in that, but I'm so excited how we're getting started with this book and I can't wait to see what else the Lord has for us. Would you please stand and let's pray? Okay, went very, very long. So I'm going to spend some time in asking the Lord for some forgiveness. Okay, (laughs) Lord God, I am so thankful, Father, for your word. 
and the study of it and the resources and the tools that help us see it come to life. But Lord, primarily, I'm so thankful for the presence of your spirit. God, without the Holy Spirit indwelling us, how would we have this communion in this relationship with you? So thank you, Lord, for paving the way for it by your ascension. Thank you, Lord, for making good on your promises. And thank you, Lord, for the arrival of the Spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to walk in the presence of the Holy Spirit, Lord, by our surrender, by our release of all of our cares and concerns, the things that you're growing us out of. Not because they don't matter, but because they shouldn't panic us anymore. And so I thank you, Lord, for that. And I thank you for these people. I thank you for the, the movement of all that you're doing in our midst from surrendered people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.